If you hang out enough with social justice activists, you'll eventually hear the classic slogan, another world is possible. Let me share my screen with you. I think it'll help to have some visual aids. You can find this slogan spray painted as graffiti on subway walls. You can find it emblazoned on t-shirts. You can spot it on lapel buttons. The phrase, another world is possible, invites us to imagine what might be. To remember that the way things are is neither the way they've always been, nor the way they always have to be. In the words of the late social justice activist Grace Lee Boggs, another world is necessary. Another world is possible. Another world is happening. But what kind of world will that be? Will it be a world with peace, liberty, and justice increasingly for all? Or one with peace, liberty, and justice reserved only for a select few or hoarded by an elite few? This past Wednesday morning, we had the experience of what it feels like when another world begins to shift into place. As we approached midday Eastern time, a new president of the United States was sworn in, as well as the first female, first African-American, and first Asian-American vice president. At that moment, I know many of us breathed a long sigh of release, relief, or joy, and had an embodied experience that another world is possible. On Wednesday morning, the words of the Indian author and activist Arundhati Roy felt palpably true for many people around the world. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. And on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Can you feel that right now in this moment or recall feeling it perhaps on Wednesday? Another world is not only possible. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. But it's also true that there is no guarantee that potentialities will come into their full fruition. Indeed, a slight tweak on the slogan that we've been exploring that you also sometimes find scribbled on subway walls is that another end of the world is possible. The last four years have given us a traumatic, again, embodied experience of that truth as well. And the past few weeks alone have been a wild roller coaster of emotions. Over just the course of three Wednesdays, we have collectively experienced the storming of the United States Capitol the second impeachment of Donald Trump, the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president. That's just three Wednesdays. That means that collectively, we're only, all that happened in a mere two-week period. Another world is possible. And it's up to us, to we, the people, to keep our hands on the wheel so that the world that becomes possible is the world we dream about and not the world of our nightmares. To briefly look back, as some of you have heard me outline before, the universalist side of our UU history, it is a powerful reminder that we have been part of movements that have taken significant strides 
to make another world possible. In the 1700s, at a time when you know, Jonathan Edwards was famously preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is really about God in the hands of angry sinners. We could have a whole conversation about that. Our universalist forebears were saying universal salvation for all in a next world, which began to transmute over time into loving the hell out of this world. And that began to look like in the 1800s being our UU forebears being involved in the abolitionist movement against slavery. So universal freedom in the 1800s, universal voting rights, universal civil rights. It began to look like in the 2000s, universal marriage rights for all, especially for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country. Each of those dreams was called unrealistic. Just go back and look until right before they happened. They were called unrealistic before social justice activists pushed us to prove that another world is possible. Remembering this past can be key to emboldening our work in the present to continue turning our dreams into deeds. Continuing this universalist trajectory that we've been tracing, it could mean advocating for similar universalist goals right here and now that may feel unrealistic right now. But if you look back, these give us hope that they might not be. Things like universal health care, universal education through college or vocational training for all people. You know, access to that the same way we have access through K-12 and a universal basic income. It's been fascinating to watch how these COVID stimulus checks have given people a glimpse into what a universal basic income could look uh, and feel like. Keep this history in mind as we prepare to imagine how another world is possible in regard to mass incarceration. It's okay to admit as we prepare to tackle this topic, and I encourage you to stick with me. We've got some things to, to cover this morning. That for many of us, it can be difficult, frightening, or overwhelming to try and imagine a world without prisons or with far, far fewer prisons. But I invite you to consider that it is urgent that we try. So many human lives are at stake and so many ripple effects from those human lives. As we seek to imagine a better way, let us keep in mind the example of our abolitionist forebears who made the seemingly impossible possible, who made a way out of no way. In their time and place, remember what was done by John Brown and Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth, by Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, by union members on strike and Stonewall rioters, or more recently by Occupy Wall Street activists and Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter organizers. In regard to the plague of mass incarceration, the two people who have done the most to awaken, challenge, and inspire our collective imaginations are let me again share my screen with you, because again, I think that visual aids will serve us. Those two people are Michelle uh, Alexander through her book that Jen mentioned earlier, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness. That book came out in 2010. Uh, and Ava DuVernay through her Netflix documentary, 13th. If you're looking for a starting point, that book and or that film are they're great places to begin. Both make a powerful, compelling case for taking the first step, which is admitting we have a problem. 
I'll lay out just a few of the most troubling facts. Beginning in the 1970s, we in this country started imprisoning our fellow citizens at an increasingly horrifying rate. Specifically, the number of people incarcerated in the United States has quintupled, multiplied fivefold since the 1980s to a total of 2.2 million. So 40 years ago, our rates of imprisonment were comparative to our peer nations. But now our level of imprisonment is five times higher than that of the average in, liber in other liberal democracies. It's nine times Germany's rate of incarceration. It is seven times France's rate of incarceration. And due to systemic racism, black defendants have been routinely punished more severely than white defendants for similar crimes. This is the new Jim Crow part, creating grave racial disparities uh, in who is most impacted by mass incarceration. The result of that is that the number of black people incarcerated or under correctional control exceeds the total number of adults enslaved in 1861. We have a problem. And it is statistics such as this one that can begin to help one understand why some contemporary prison abolitionists have adopted the same abolitionist label as their 19th century forebears who worked to abolish enslavement. They're saying there's a parallel here is what they're inviting us to see. And even beyond racial categories, it's important to realize no country on this planet is locking up their own people at the rate that we are. We here in the United States have 5% of the world's populations. So, you know, we have like a little over 300 million people. The planet has over 7 billion people. So we have 5% of the world's population and we have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. That's just stunningly terrible. Moreover, it's an expensive problem that's undermining our other priorities. Over the past three decades, state and local governments, their expenditures on jails and prisons have increased roughly three times as fast as spending on elementary and secondary education. We could be taking all that money and doing much better things than creating school-to-prison pipelines. We could be creating school-to-job to better citizen pipelines. We spend $43 billion a, a year as a country on prisons and jails. That's a cost of $15,000 to $70,000 annually per prisoner. We can and must do better. Amidst these dire statistics, one source of hope is that falling crime rates and mounting costs of prisons are opening a window for the possibility of deep reform. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. For many of you, knowledge about this state of affairs may well not be new. Our UU movement has been calling attention to the problems of mass incarceration since the beginning. To give only one early example, many Unitarian Universalists were involved in the call for a national moratorium on prison construction that lobbied Congress from 1975 through the mid-1980s. Since this has been a major problem for a long time, it may also help to tell you just a little of the story of how it began to feel increasingly important for me to schedule a Sunday service on this topic. A little more than five years ago in June 2015, I was, intending, I was attending a business session at the annual Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly that's held each summer. Uh, we as a people were debating the language of a proposed action of immediate witness in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Since the years can begin to blur together, let me just give uh, remind you of a few of the events that led up to that summer 2015 debate because it can help us to understand the rising sense of urgency. The Black Lives Matter movement had begun two years earlier in summer 2013 in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman for shooting Trayvon Martin. That social media hashtag, Black Lives Matter, helped focus the world's attention the next summer in 2014 when Eric Gardner was strangled to death by a New York City police officer. A few weeks later, when Michael Brown was killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And then in the months immediately before that June 2015 debate at UU General Assembly over support for the Black Lives Matter movement, Walter Scott was killed in Charleston, South Carolina. And a little more than a week later, Freddie Gray was killed while in police custody here in nearby Baltimore, Maryland. So at UU General Assembly that summer, there was an overall sentiment that we needed to pass some sort of statement supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. But this is where it gets tricky. How strong will our support be and what all will it include? What I, from what I recall, the most debate was over whether the statement should include two words that encouraged UUs to work for prison, abolition. I remember folks at the microphone describing prison abolition as unrealistic, as detracting from the rest of the statement, as speaking of prison, they were speaking of prison abolition dismissively, as if it was one of the most ridiculous things they had ever heard. I remember thinking, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a thing. <laughs> And I was intrigued that in a room of committed Unitarian Universals, committed enough to like go to General Assembly, uh, that, and let's be honest, that many of us think of ourselves as unusually informed and open-minded, especially you use that go to GA, and I'm, I'm one of them. So uh, I was surprised that there were so many people who seemed not only unable to imagine what a prison abolition movement might look like, but also seemed unaware that Unitarian Universalists and many other social justice activists have been thinking for a long time about how another world is possible in regard to criminal justice. I remember thinking, have any of you heard of Angela Davis? <laughs> you know. uh, here's the thing, it matters who's in the room. The whole debate about prison abolition starts to look and feel so different depending on your social location. How many people you know and love who have been part of the prison industrial complex or, or whether you yourself have. From the perspective of someone caught up in the web of our current mass incarceration um, system, let me uh, show a quote to you. From that perspective, the chant from activist Ashada Shakur of wanting to abolish the current system starts to make more sense. She says, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support each other. And this is the key line. From that perspective of being part of the prison industrial complex, we have nothing to lose but our chains. This chant is often heard at Black Lives Matter actions. Fast forwarding five years to June 2020 at last year's General Assembly, the gathered delegates passed an action of immediate witness on 400 years of white supremacist colonialism that included a line calling on UUs to adopt a vision of prison abolition. 
And it's important to keep in mind that part of the context that that statement was passed in was that this summer's General Assembly happened about a month after the horrifying video was released of George Floyd being killed as a white police officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. But it's important to me to not just pass statements like this, but to revisit them, to go deeper into them. Let's actually talk about what a vision would look like. Also in response to George, George Floyd's murder, our current UUA president, the Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray, released a statement, a quite a bold one, that included this line, we must demilitarize and defund the police, we must defund and decarcerate the jails. The GA debate in 2015 planted a seed in me that there was a failure of imagination in some parts of our movement regarding how to end mass incarceration. But it was Susan's statement in June that made me think, okay, we're doing this. And it motivated me to schedule this sermon and invite us to equip ourselves more fully to imagine that on the other side of our current carceral state, another world is possible. Now, I realize this statement may be challenging for some of you. It's, it's challenging for me, to be honest. Part of why I wanted to schedule it is I felt like I did not feel like I was as articulate and informed as I needed to be. So that's some of what, why I wanted to prepare this sermon. And as always, we have both the freedom of the pulpit and the freedom of the pew. I'm free to preach what I think is important for us to consider, and you are free to take or leave what seems right to you, according to your conscience. But I invite you to consider, as you continue to listen to this sermon and the music to come, notice if you can begin to hear another world on her way, another world beginning to breathe. Now, there's no one right way to respond to this social problem, and I invite you to consider you may find yourself this morning and in the days and weeks to come and years to come at a few different points along a spectrum that could range anywhere from some reform on one side to more radical abolition on the other side. You may find yourself in a place of no change, keeping the status quo of mass incarceration or increasing it. I'd call that a zero, increasing it. Uh, abolish the death penalty to life in prison, or maybe at a midpoint, some decrease in our prison population, or maybe you're willing to take steps toward a significant decrease, like 50% or more, or maybe abolishing prisons on the other end of the spectrum to the greatest extent possible. I'm going to briefly address each in turn. To start with the status quo, I hope that the dire statistics I have already shared have convinced most, if not all of you, we can and must do better, in my judgment, than either maintaining or increasing our current state of mass criminalization and hyper-incarceration. So let me turn to the next point of where you may find yourself on the spectrum. And that's, re that's a related abolitionist movement, abolishing the death penalty, which generally begins with a call to commute all um, death sentences to life in prison. Until recently, I didn't plan to bring up the death penalty. I've already got, had enough I wanted to say this morning. I preached a whole sermon previously on capital punishment, and I'll have to limit myself to just a few urgent points, but here's what changed my mind about bringing up the death penalty today. As some of you may have been following, prior to just the past few months, the last time the United States government executed someone in our name was 2003. The most recent was eight days ago. 
four days prior to the end of Donald Trump's term as president. And I want to invite you to hear just the opening paragraph from the dissent of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. After 17 years, without a single federal execution, the government has executed 12 people since July. They are Daniel Lee, Wesley Perkey, Dustin Honkin, Lesmond Mitchell, Keith Nelson, William LaCroix Jr., Christopher Bialva, Orlando Hall, Brandon Bernard, Alfred Bourgeois, Lisa Montgomery, and just last night, Corey Johnson. Today, she writes, Dustin Higgs will become the 13th. To put that in historical context, the federal government will have executed more than three times as many people in the last six months than it had in the previous six decades. The federal government will have executed more than three times as many people in the last six months than it has in the previous six decades. And as Justice Sotomayor concluded in her dissent, these executions were rushed. They received inadequate scrutiny without resolving the serious claims that the condemned individuals raised. Those whom the government executed during this endeavor deserve more from this court. I dissent, she concluded. Share my screen with you. So moving to the third point, to transition from the possibility of abolishing the death penalty to the midpoint on the spectrum of beginning to reduce the number of people in prison. One key quote that comes to mind that relates to both of these is from Brian Stevenson's powerful book, Just Mercy, also a past UU common read, also recently made into a film. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. It's so crucial to remember that point. Along those lines, the most common suggested starting point for reducing mass incarceration is to begin with people who are in prison for nonviolent drug con convictions. That could indeed be a good place to begin, but we also need to acknowledge that would only account for 15% of people in prison. It would not come anywhere close to making our rate of imprisonment in this country more equitable to other liberal democracies. And even if we open our minds, hearts, spirits, and imagination to this fourth point on the spectrum of significant reductions in people incarcerated, there remain some difficult truths to face. One of the kind of things people latch onto is let's cut it in half. That would be significant. But even at, its, but even at half its current size, we need to know that our U.S. incarceration rate would remain three times that of France and four times that of Germany. And it'd be an improvement instead of seven times, it'd be three times and nine times. It's an improvement. But it would still be in similar degrees of excess to where it was for the first three quarters of the 20th century. If we're going to make some serious changes to our current system, uh, if you're interested in diving more into this, Emily Bazelon, the journalist and Yale law professor, she makes a strong argument in her book, Charge. So check out this book. It's a pretty quick read if you're interested. She makes a persuasive case for starting with prosecutors, that that can make a huge difference. In our current system, prosecutorial discretion has a huge influence over 
over whether to authorize arrests in the first place, whether to request bail, whether to hold someone in jail or release them on their own recognizance, whether to press all charges or lean toward a um, plea bargain. So like all of the prosecutors just have a tremendous amount of power in our current system. She emphasizes that prosecutors really are the ones who often decide who gets a second chance. And let's just say it's rich white people who often get a second chance and others who don't. Bazelon makes a good case for beginning with a focus on prosecutors. It's also true, however, that our criminal justice system has many interlocking parts. So there's plenty of room for reform in courts generally on how we do parole boards and more. Again, if you're curious to dive into the detail, even just the end of her book has a 20-page appendix that gets into specific details and potential change. But instead of getting lost in the, um, those details, I want to make sure we get to this fifth and final step, inviting us to um, venture forth and experimenting with opening our imaginations to some of what it might really look like to abolish prisons to the greatest extent possible. To consider viable alternatives, um, it can be important to realize that we need more than just abolishing the prison system we have. That's what gets people stuck. They just think we're just going to open, you know, it's just get out of jail free card and we, we stop there. We need to replace, we need systems thinking, not we have to replace the toxic system we have, the prison industrial complex, with a better system. As the prison scholar and City University of New York professor Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, abolition, it's about presence, not absence. It's about building life-affirming institutions, systems, and structures. Or as the activist author and professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Angela Davis has said, such a shift would require the revitalization of education at all levels. A health system that provides free physical and mental care to all in a justice system based on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution and vengeance. This point brings us back to where we began, the universalist side of our UU heritage, the need to continue the trajectory of ever widening circles of inclusion to build a stable floor for all. Universal healthcare, universal uh, access to education through college or vocational training, and a universal basic income so that every human being can live a life with dignity. As we seek to um, imagine a better world beyond locking our fellow human beings in cages, it's important to acknowledge that with rare exception of true sociopaths, most violence, it's not just a matter of individual pathology. It's not just bad apples. It's about bad barrels in our society that, that cause the apples to rot. Most um, violence is created. Poverty drives violence. Inequity drives violence. Lack of opportunity drives violence. Shame and isolation drives violence. Violence itself drives violence. So the more we seek to repair that, the more we'll, we'll decrease violence without having to lock people up. And often prisons just end up creating better criminals. A uh, lot to say about all of that. So if we want to get serious about ending mass incarceration, we need to divert funding from the military industrial complex to help fund a better domestic social program. And as Dr. King told us, a, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. 
Likewise, we need to shift funding from the prison industrial complex to fund restorative justice programs. I'll say just a little about what that means. Earlier, we talked about the death penalty. You may recall that the name of the case in which Justice um, Sotomayor was dissenting was called the United States versus Justin John Higgs. Our current system of justice centers the government as the aggrieved party and assigns a consequence in the form of vengeance and punitive punishment. But the most direct victim in this case are the three women that Mr. Huggs is not accused of directly killing himself, but is accused of playing a role in their murder. And I don't want to get lost in the details of this one case. I want to underscore that a restorative justice system would focus not on the government, but on either the victim of the crime, if they are still alive, or those surviving family and friends who are most directly impacted. It's a form of truth and reconciliation process, and one that can be transformative and powerful for all involved. I'll give you just one example of some of the main steps that is fairly representative of a similar of similar restorative justice models and note that many of the steps are not found in our current so-called justice system that often denies um, families and survivors a chance to be active parts of the process. So restorative justice looks like acknowledging responsibility for one's actions. And if you can't do any of these things at any point, you get kicked out into our current um, justice system. Truth telling is the requisite first step in a truth and reconciliation process. Acknowledging the impact of one's actions on others, regardless of your intent, being willing to acknowledge the impact. Expressing genuine remorse, going to an emotionally vulnerable place beyond just the one who does the crime does the time. Doing sorry taking action to repair harm to the degree possible and guided when feasible by the people harmed. And finally, no longer committing similar harm. Creating programs that guide people through accountable and authentic truth and reconciliation would be potentially so much more life-giving and transformative for all involved than simply hoping that the threat of someone, locking someone in a cage would deter crime. Clearly that is not working. And many of the growing number of restorative justice programs around our country have impressive statistics as to their effectiveness. For more specifics, one um, good recent book is Until We Reckon, uh, Violence, Mass Incarceration and the Road to Repair by um, Danielle Sered, who uh, is led a, has significant success in running a restorative justice program in New York City. Uh, an even more accessible book is Healing Resistance by Kazuhaga, who does similar work in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Now, as I move toward my conclusion, let us come full circle to the third of those recent historic Wednesdays in our nation's history. As we open our hearts and minds to the truth that another world is possible, I invite you to listen to these words from Amanda Gorman's powerful inaugural poem, The Hill we climb that I know so many of us appreciated this past week. As we seek to imagine a better world beyond mass incarceration, consider her words anew. If we merged mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. 
As we consider the possibility of a more life-giving, restorative justice, truth and reconciliation process, hear the words of her final stanza. For there was always light, if we're brave enough to see it, if we're brave enough to be it. In that spirit, let's sing together a hymn written as part of the South African anti-apartheid movement, another time when people could not imagine that another world was possible. But it was, and it is. Let's sing together, freedom is coming. <laughs>